Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Word Became Flesh. So turning your Bibles with me to John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Believing in the Light. world is full of people who call other people to follow them. You know, sometimes that's good. You know, a good political leader works hard for her constituency and, and aims to keep all of them in mind, even those who didn't vote for her when she aims to draft legislation. She wants us to follow her because she wants us to believe that she has the best interests of her constituency in mind, and, and if she actually does, well, that's a good thing to follow her. Well, a good science teacher will want to inspire his students to follow him into a world of evidentiary inquiry. And a good philosopher will teach her students deductive and inductive logic in order to evaluate the truth claims they hear. And a good tradesman may inspire a number of people to follow him into a career that that makes a difference in the world and provides a lifelong pathway to productivity and to the service of others. And all of that, well, that's good. See, I once heard someone say, only Jesus deserves disciples. And look, I understand the sentiment, but actually it's not true. See, all manner of people are looking for disciples, and to follow someone is good or bad depending upon the kind of leadership they're exhibiting. See, I'm pleased, as we all should be, for the many leaders in our society that inspire and enlighten, train, and change the lives of the next generation. But there is something, says John, in the book of John, that only Jesus can do, and in which everyone else, if they try to do that thing, they're they're a pretender. There's a leadership that he gives in which we would rightfully say that should anyone else think that they could lead in this area, they are by nature imposters. Well, I'm doing a two-week Christmas series from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and today I want to read John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, John's describing the Christmas event, not by tracing the historical details of the birth of Christ, but by describing the significance of the birth of Christ. And what he wants us to know is that Jesus plays a role in this world that is shared by none other. Look again at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, as an example, I want you to imagine a small town somewhere that only has one teacher. Well, maybe it has other teachers, but nobody teaches objective knowledge. Most of the people in the town are just oblivious to their teacher. Imagine they can't read. Imagine they don't know anything about math or science, history, art, geography, so on. See, the only avenue they have to this kind of knowledge is that one true teacher. And some people go to the teacher and send their kids to him as well. They allow him to teach them, and so this teacher changes many lives. And others, however, scoff at the teacher. They say, you know, we don't have any need for a teacher. I mean, why should we get writing and learning? I mean, they're perfectly fine without him. And why should they learn biology when they can just, you know, believe in a sugar pill or something of that nature? 
And even if the majority never go to that teacher, he's still the only teacher they have available to them. There are no others. He alone has the knowledge that this people group so desperately needs. And that's what John is saying here. Jesus is the true light that gives light to every man. Jesus is the only source of true light that anyone has. He's our only teacher. He's the only one who can take us to the Father. Now, verse 9 tells us that Jesus is the true light. It means he's the genuine light. He's the real article. Let me see if I can explain that. There are, as you know, a number of signposts or indicators that should point us to God. You know, one of those signposts is creation itself, the world in all its beauty and its complexity, its grandeur. Any thinking person should ask this question, how did all of this come to be? Why is there something rather than nothing? How is it possible that everything in nature speaks of intelligent design? I mean, at the outset, this should be a sign leading us to the Creator. It's one light, or to use my metaphor, it's just one signpost. But if we had time, we would see that God's revelation in nature never leads anyone to God. In the end, that is, at the last judgment, it will be evidence against them that they are without excuse. They deliberately chose to ignore the signpost in the road, or they deliberately chose to stay away from the light. But putting that matter aside, we still need to grasp the idea that creation actually is a signpost that tells us about the Creator. But there are more signposts. A second signpost is the signpost of conscience. You know, have you ever wondered why you have this inner sense of right and wrong? Why is it that unless you cauterize your conscience through repeated immoral behavior, that you feel guilty about actions that are wrong? See, that inner sense that we have, well, it speaks of an objective standard, a signpost, just like the one of creation, that should give us direction. A third signpost is the signpost of God's dealings with people in the past. See, God chose a man named Abraham and revealed to him that there was but only one God. I mean, did you know that all monotheistic religions in the world, without exception, trace their root system to Abraham? That is, if there is but one God, then there are no alternatives as to who that one God is. That one God is the God who revealed himself to Abraham. And, and that signpost is like a loud set of speakers saying, pay attention, there is but one God. Now, while all these are signposts pointing us to the true light, they are not the true light. See, I want you to imagine you're taking your family to Disneyland and you, you got them in a car and wow, you're off. You arrive in Southern California and you stop at a sign that says Disneyland and you say, hey kids, I witness to the truth of Disneyland. Let's stay here at this sign, it's so beautiful. And so you take your whole vacation, you eat, you play, you have fun around that sign. See, that's what some of us have done. You know, they've recognized the sign. Of course, others haven't, but many have. But they've not followed the sign to the one and only true light. And the point of what John is saying is that of all the signs, that is, creation, conscious, history, the revelation of the Old Testament, all these signs are pointing us to but one true light as opposed to false lights, which are not the authentic thing. And says John, Jesus is the only true light. Let's see if I can illustrate that. You know, I have said as a part of this series that there's a difference between the reflection of light and the actual radiance of light. See, the moon reflects the light of the sun, but it's not the true light. 
The essence, the true light, the thing itself, says John, was entering into the world. That's Christmas. Not that the child reflects the light of God. No, no, no. This child is the essential light of God. And that's why Jesus has a place in history that no one else can have. And that's also why Jesus demands a kind of followership that no one else can offer. Jesus doesn't take you to the knowledge of God. He is the knowledge of God. This is the Logos itself, the actual word itself entering into the world. You know, the story is told of D.L. Moody, who was a powerful evangelist in the 1800s. And Moody was on a train and a man barged over to him and he was clearly drunk and he was loud and he was aggressive. And he said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. And Moody said, sir, you must be, for you're surely not one of Christ's. See, Christ alone deserves adoration. He alone deserves perfect obedience. He alone deserves allegiance. Now, having made that point in verse 9, John now adds another thought. And I'm reading verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. So I want you to notice the word world. You know, at first glance, the word seems plain enough. I mean, Jesus came into the world, and by that we mean he came into planet Earth. See, but I'm convinced that's not what John is trying to say. See, every time the word world is used in the book of John, it, it refers to something negative. So, for instance, in John 12, 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Or John 15, if, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And then later on, reflecting on this, John was to say, and I'm reading 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world refers to humanity that hates the Creator. That part of humanity that is centered on its own cravings and desires, willing to do whatever it takes to get what it wants for itself. And John says the true light entered into a place where that place hated its creator, despised its light, and would do everything it could to extinguish that light. So when that light came into the world, John is telling us that the light came into conflict the conflict between darkness and light. Well, we're drawing close to the last call to join us on board the Freedom of the Seas this February 3rd to the 11th for our 60th anniversary Celebration Caribbean Cruise. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, Isaac Dagno from In Doubt, and special friends and musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb for a nine-day adventure taking in all the wonderful sights and sounds of the Caribbean while enjoying exceptional opportunities for worship, fellowship, laughter, and digging deep into God's Word. Don't miss out. Call today. We'd love to see you there. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca. And please remember that this trip or any of our Back to the Bible Canada vacation events are paid for solely by the participants and the ministry gifts from friends across Canada are never used for this purpose. Let me explain the world. According to John, the world thrives on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So let's take one of those examples, the lust of the flesh. The world is addicted to illicit sex. 
The world is addicted to gambling. That also is the lust of the flesh. You know, for years, when I would drive home from church, I would drive past one of the largest casinos in the country. And as I drove past, I would look over and say, hey, man, there's, there's my competition. See, the world is addicted to a way of doing business that offends God. Some time ago, I, I saw an article in the newspaper that asked a question. It simply said, can you live in Vancouver without lying? And the answer from the article was, no, you can't. And they, they gave all manner of real-life examples of just that. See, the world lies, and it justifies lying. It, it, it says it, it helps you to get ahead. And when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, well, it's quite astonishing. The world says, big deal. I mean, if the Creator messes with us, well, we'll nail him to a cross. And says John, that's the world. That's the world that Jesus came into. Not exactly a receptive audience. And there's more. John says that he came to that which was his own. And, and here he's referring to the Jewish race, God's chosen people. And the history of Israel really is a long history of rebellion of God. And, you know, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And it really can be said that, you know, Israel was dragged kicking and screaming out of Egypt. They complained all the way to the promised land. And when they got there, well, they promptly turned away from God and they began to worship idols. They stoned their prophets. They ignored God's laws. You know, Jeremiah 7, 25 to 26, I think is a great example. I mean, there God says, from the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. You know, lest we become too critical of the Jewish treatment of Jesus, you know, the Bible teaches that the Jews are actually a lesson book for all the nations. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. In other words, Israel and her sad history of rebellion is a lesson book to the nations. The history of Israel is merely a mirror that's held up to our own souls. It tells us what we're truly like. You know, Israel murdered their Messiah, and in so doing, Israel showed us what we would all have done. And that leads us to a conclusion. The problem with the light is never intellectual. It's moral. Human beings have a love affair with darkness, and Jesus is an unwelcome intrusion into our lives. He comes to us speaking about purity in every area of life, but we love vice. We love perversity. He comes speaking to us of sacrifice, but we, we love our own self-indulgence at the expense of others. And he comes speaking to us of the worship of the one true God, but we, well, we love worshiping ourselves. We love idols or we love all the created things over and above and instead of the creator of all things. I remember years ago being called to do a wedding. The young woman told me she was a Christian, and the young man said he was not. I'm going to call them Jim and Sally. I explained to them that I could not, conscience-wise, perform a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. Well, Sally told me she was hurt by my stand and by my unwillingness to see her genuine feelings of love for Jim. And then Jim said that he respected my position, but he had a question. He said, what's the big deal about being a Christian? 
So I explained to him that we were all sinners, but that God has sent his son into the world to die for our sins and, and to open up an avenue before God. And I explained that Christ had done it all and that all that was required of us was that we would confess our sins and believe in Jesus and surrender our entire lives into his hands. Well, he was quiet for quite a while and then he turned to Sally and he said, you know, that's not how you explained it to me, honey. And so I turned to Sally and I said, in as gentle a voice as I could muster, I said, Sally, how would you like to surrender your entire being into Christ's loving hands? And she then said to me, and I'll never forget that, she said, no one tells me what to do. You know, I've spent countless hours with people explaining that Jesus was a genuine historical figure, that he really did die on the cross and that he really did rise again, and that the Old Testament has literally hundreds of fulfilled prophecies about him and that the Bible can be trusted. But never have I found that this alone is convincing to anyone. That's because our problem is always moral. In order to come to Jesus, we must confess our sins. We must turn from them, believe in his name, and surrender our lives into his hands. And that's tough. And that's exactly what John is talking about. The problem with the Christmas story is that light entered into a world that had a love affair with darkness. The problem is the love affair that we have with our idols and with ourselves. That's the human condition. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so when John says that his own did not receive him, he's not saying this as if it's some kind of a, a, a surprising twist in the Christmas story, as if Christmas presents us with God's sentimental tenderness and then shock of shocks, the wheels seem to fall off on the story. No, this hardened, aggressive response is the Christmas story. I mean, there we have the story of Herod's rage and, and Jesus' parents spiriting him away as a refugee, finding refuge in Egypt. No, no, Christmas is not sentimental nonsense. It's the story of intrigue and lies and murder and hatred of the light. And as John later in Revelation 12 would symbolize this story, he tells of a woman giving birth to a child and of a dragon waiting to devour the child the minute it's born. And that's the Christmas story. But that might lead us to wonder, well, perhaps then the Christmas story will end in failure. If the world did not receive him, and if even God's chosen people did not receive him, what then can anyone come to believe? Well, let's reread verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, this is quite simply one of the most wonderful passages in Scripture. The great mystery is not why everyone doesn't recognize Jesus. The great mystery is why anyone does. Here's what the Bible says. The miracle is that in the world, some did receive him to as many as received him. I and mean, we can also read, to as many as welcomed him. See, I want you to imagine Jesus coming to your door today. The house is a mess. I mean, perhaps you've just had a fight with your wife and you're mad at your kids or your roommate, or maybe you've had a pressing appointment, or maybe you just want to be alone. But for some reason, and you don't really know what the reason is, but you welcome him in. It's terribly inconvenient, and it's the worst possible time that he could arrive. I mean, you wish the timing could have been better, but nonetheless, you welcome him in. Well, what accounts for that? 
And the answer is that those who welcomed him were not born of blood. That is, they didn't welcome him because they belonged to the bloodline of God's chosen people. And secondly, those who welcomed him didn't do so because of the will of the flesh. That is to say, they didn't do so because in their own hearts, while well, they just thought that Jesus was also wonderful. No, no. In Romans 8, verse 7, Paul says that the flesh is hostile to God. And John makes that same point when he says, we love darkness rather than light. Everything in our will finds the entrance of Jesus to be an unwelcome intrusion into both our world and into our individual lives. We want to say to the Creator, stay out of my life. I find you to be undesirable. It wasn't bloodline. It wasn't the will of the flesh that received him and believed in his name. And in case we missed that point, John even adds a third item. It was not the will of man that received Jesus as Savior and Lord. Well, then what accounts for men and women from every race and tribe and tongue and people group in the earth bowing before Jesus and welcoming him and receiving him into their lives? And John says, these people were born of God. God birthed them. A love of Jesus was born in the hearts of men and women who were born of God. That's why they knelt before him. As Jesus would say later in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's the wonder of the Christmas story. God sent his son into the world, but God also birthed in men and women all over the world a deep, passionate love for his son so that he is welcomed in a world that loved darkness. Truly, the darkness was never, never able to hold back the light. John, it would seem from the passage that we're looking at today that, you know, the light isn't something we necessarily welcome as the world. It's almost an intrusion and maybe why we find it so offensive. Is that true? Yeah, that's, that is, uh, I think that's the message of the entire book of John. Uh, men love darkness rather than light. Uh, I think it's true of all of us. And I, I think it's a great illustration to think of somebody who's never seen light and suddenly, you know, this piercing, stabbing light and it hurts their eyes and, you know, just turn it off. And I think that is a response to Jesus. And the great mercy of God has made us such that some of us would welcome the light. I mean, that's the miracle of all that story, you know. We would nail Jesus to the cross all over again. That's true. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. What do I believe? This question shapes how we live, how we respond to life. And your support is essential to providing this ministry opportunity to teach the Bible. It allows for us to answer questions about God, faith, suffering, sexuality, questions elusive in a society increasingly hostile to the Bible and its teaching. Recently, a mom sent us this question. My 10-year-old son was very discouraged. He prays every night to keep the world safe. He said, I'm praying really hard, and why are people and children still being killed? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he stop it? Well, Back to the Bible Canada exists to teach the Bible, to respond to the tough questions of life and faith. 
Could we ask you to continue to support us for this purpose? December is a critical month, and our goal by December 31st is to raise $400,000. Your gift is essential. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.